Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you're tuning into this particular episode of Focus on Facts. I'm Eric Sussman, and glad to be reconnecting with you once again to retell a story told many, many times before on Wall Street, and yet one whose lessons never seem to be learned, especially by those who really ought to know better. And yet we are talking about a lesson that seems self-evidently simple, but how the combination of concentrated investing, excessive leverage, and financial derivatives can create a toxic brew, imploding even supposedly gifted investors and asset managers. With that, I'd like to begin this particular episode with a thought experiment, if you'll indulge me. I want you to imagine that you are worth, I don't know, say $20 billion, yes, $20 billion with a B, and that your net worth entirely consists of publicly traded liquid stocks or the equivalent. Now, for some really perverse and inexplicable reason, you not only want to lose all of that money, but to lose all of it as fast as you can. That's right. You want to lose all $20 billion of your net worth as quickly as possible. Oh, and without giving it away, you actually want to lose it. How long would it take for you to do it? Now, some of you are thinking that that would make about the most ridiculously extraordinary night in Vegas, Macau, or Monte Carlo. But could you really lose $20 billion that quickly? Even gaming tables have their limits. Well, I would like to introduce you to Bill Wang and his family office, or perhaps I should say his former family office, Arcagos Capital. Mr. Wang and his family office appear to have lost his family's entire net worth between 10 and $30 billion in about a week. I am not sure David Copperfield or Harry Houdini could make money disappear that quickly, and Mr. Wang's remarkable, if inauspicious, feat likely qualifies him for a special membership in the Guinness Book of World Records. Many market participants have said that this is the fastest loss of this magnitude that they have ever seen. Now, that may be an exaggeration, but it's quite possibly true. So to begin this podcast, I would like to formally introduce you to Mr. Bill Wang and Arkegos, two names most of us have probably never heard of. And for those of us who now do recognize the names, we probably would not have just a few short weeks ago. Then again, how many of us had heard of Bernie Madoff? architect of the largest financial fraud in history who passed away this week and for whose passing few probably mourn. Oh, that, that's a story you might have missed, that Bernie Madoff died last week. Now, while Mr. Wang is not accused, at least not yet, of any sort of fraud, it is often the most anonymous of folks, people we've never heard of before, who can teach us some of the most valuable lessons about investing and the financial markets. I mean, do any of the following names ring a bell to you? Robert Citron, Nick Leeson, Robert Merton and Myron Scholes. Those two names, perhaps. Jerome Curvier, Fabrice There, the fabulous fab as he was known, Bruno Ixil. Okay, maybe a couple of the names ring a bell. But these seven individuals, along with Mr. Wang, would make up the roster of previously anonymous individuals, at least to most investors, the kind of people you never see on CNBC or read about in the Wall Street Journal, who were somehow able to bankrupt 
or significantly impair entire counties, entire funds, and entire banks through inexplicably reckless investment strategies. How many of us remember when Orange County, yes, Orange County here in Southern California, went bankrupt in 1994? When Barings PLC, the oldest Irish bank, went under the next year in 1995? Long-term capital management, when it went poof in 1998? Or when SockGen, J.P. Morgan, and Goldman Sachs incurred tremendous losses at various times in the last 15 years due to the actions of a single individual investor or trader? Well, Mr. Wang and Archegos have simply emerged as the latest fund manager and investor, along with some sophisticated investment banks. Again, you know, those institutional investors who are supposed to be sophisticated and know better to forgotten history and some of the most basic tenets of investing, finance, and capital markets. The dangers of having too many eggs in too few baskets, excessive leverage, and the potential risks and dangers of derivatives, financial instruments like options, futures, and swaps, which can be ticking time bombs. Mark Twain famously said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So in this episode, we are going to talk about Mr. Huang, his family office, and what the heck went wrong. What does his implosion and those from the past teach us? What lessons should we take away from these debacles so we don't repeat the sins of the past? What are total return swaps, the derivative instruments which played a critical role in Mr. Wang's and Archegos' demise and caused heads rolling and other crises at investment banks like Credit Suisse and Omura? Archegos was the family office of Mr. Wang, whose curriculum vitae included stints at Tiger Management, a very well-regarded, if not legendary, hedge fund, which also took highly concentrated long and short positions in various stocks. Perhaps Mr. Wang's greatest claim to fame is that he is actually a UCLA alumnus who may even have been a classmate of mine since we were undergrads there around the same time. Anyhow, Mr. Wang left Tiger Management in 2000 and started his own fund, Tiger Asia Management. For several years, he hid it out of the proverbial park, achieving returns of between 40 and 80% a year. Yeah, you heard that right. 40 to 80% a year. Not too shabby. Now, many of us hearing those sorts of figures will have a visceral reaction that he was either taking on unbelievable risks to achieve those sorts of results or perhaps engaging in some not-so-kosher practices. And it turns out that both of these things would ultimately prove correct. In 2008, he took a huge bath, and not the kind involving Mr. Bubbles or lavender-scented salts, shorting Volkswagen. And then in 2012, after years of investigations, the Securities and Exchange Commission accused Tiger Asia and Wang of insider trading and manipulation of two Chinese bank stocks. He paid $44 million to settle the claims, returned capital to investors, and closed his fund. The following year, in 2013, he opened up his own family office, Archegos. So what exactly is a family office and what role do they play here? I think I first heard of them about 15 years ago or so, and over time, they have become a more significant player in the investment world. Family offices are essentially captive investment firms owned and operated by very well-heeled families who no longer want to use 
the services of third parties or private wealth professionals to manage their assets. So they bring them in-house, so to speak. In most instances, these wealthy families will directly hire investment professionals to manage and invest on their behalves. Maybe they will poach a really capable asset manager from another firm. Less commonly, an actual family member will manage the office and investments. That was the situation with Arcagos. Collectively, family offices now own some $6 trillion in assets, twice that of hedge funds, and there are something like 7,000 of them around the world. But here's the, the rub. They operate almost completely under the radar with minimal disclosure requirements. After all, there are no third-party investors involved, so they really have few or maybe nobody to answer to, at least from a regulatory or third-party perspective. More on that later. Okay, back to 2013 when Mr. Wang opens and creates Arkegos and his own family office. He begins to employ the same investment strategy that served him well, or mostly well, most of the time, from Tiger Asia. I suppose it's that familiar adage that old habits die hard. One, he took very concentrated positions in a relatively small number of companies and stocks. Two, he targeted, at least in some cases, heavily shorted stocks. And three, and this is where the rubber really hits the road, he used leverage, extraordinary leverage, employing financial derivatives to do so. Now, let's step back. There's nothing inherently unique, unusual, or problematic when it comes to leverage, the use of debt or OPM, other people's money, to make investments and increase investment returns. Take the simplest and most intuitive example. What happens when most of us buy a house? We put 20% down and borrow 80% from a lender, generally Fannie Mae, here in the good old US of A. So we, too, are leveraged. And Five to one when we buy a house. We use $20,000 of down payment to purchase the $100,000 home. Now, then again, I don't know where you can buy a home for $100,000 anywhere on the planet these days, but hopefully you get the point in the math, which still holds. Now, in the single-family home business, even if your home declines in value, even dropping 20%, any homeowner would be profoundly bummed out. But the bank is not going to foreclose on you and force you to sell so long as you continue to make those mortgage payments. And as we have actually witnessed over the past year with COVID, many times lenders won't foreclose even if you stop making those payments. After all, if they foreclose on you, they need to work through some legal machinations. And then, assuming they succeed, they would still have to sell the home, hardly a pain-free or super quick process. Now, in the stock market, rules here in the United States prevent individual investors from buying securities with more than 50% of the capital borrowed on margin. Hedge funds and family office, however, have no such restrictions. As a result, leverage employed by Archegos was quite different, as they used what are known as total return swaps, or TRSs for short, Remember what I said about acronyms in my last SPAC episode. Beware, caveat emptor, when Wall Street starts throwing around acronyms. Anyhow, TRSs, or total return swaps, are financial derivatives sold by Wall Street banks, which allow an investor to assume the profits or losses on individual stocks for a fee. But instead of actually owning the related shares of stock outright using commonly seen margin debt, again, essentially a mortgage on a portfolio of stocks, offered by a bank for a maximum of 50% leverage, Wang and Arkegos use these total return swaps to lever up their already very concentrated portfolio 
five times, if not more. In fact, it appears that Mr. Huang and Archegos mostly owned about 10 stocks, including GSX, a very controversial and heavily shorted Chinese education tech company, two other large and well-known Chinese internet companies, Baidu and Tencent, Viacom CBS, and Discovery, owner of the Discovery Channel, all through total return swaps. Now, at the end of each trading day, Archegos would settle its swap accounts and positions. If the total value of its positions in the account increased, the investment bank would pay Archegos in cash and vice versa. If values declined, Archegos would have to put up more collateral or margin to secure its positions. Because he was using these total return swaps at a number of different investment banks who may or may not have known about each other's relationship with him, an individual investment bank may have quite likely been in the dark about the actual total amount of leverage and exposure Mr. Wang and Archegos had to an individual company. So while Archegos managed about $10 billion or more of Mr. Wang's family wealth, his actual exposure was $50 to $100 billion dollars. And his investment strategy, surprisingly simple, but was alarmingly risky and dangerous, plowing significant capital into these total return swaps tied to just a handful of individual stocks. For example, by the end of March, it appears that Archegos had exposure to tens of millions of shares in Viacom CBS, as much as 30% or more of the entire company through at least five different investment banks. What's remarkable about what he was doing is that, one, he did all of it under the radar. Outside of a small group of bankers, brokers, and others in his inner circle, nobody had a clue as to how large his family office was and how much concentrated risk he had taken. You know, when things go your way in markets and you are concentrated in leverage as Archegos was, you can make boatloads of money. In the fourth quarter of last year, seven of the 10 stocks Archegos was known to have owned in significant numbers increased in value by more than 30%, and a few increased by more than 70%, all while the S&P was up a not-too-shabby 12%. Well, that sort of success had Wall Street banks salivating and wanting more of Archegos' business. Even Goldman Sachs, which had shunned Mr. Wang following his insider trading settlement back in 2012, ultimately caved in. I suppose we can say that they began to suffer from fee envy. Look, as technology and market shifts reduce brokerage commissions, as firms bypass traditional procedures for public offerings relying on SPACs, or direct listings like the recent Coinbase initial public offering this past week. And restrictions on proprietary trading were put in place following the financial crises. Investment banks have found themselves more willing to get in bed with folks like Mr. Wang and Archegos. Tough times may not call for tough measures, but perhaps a willingness to assume far greater risks in terms of clients and transactions. Anyhow, in late 2020, Goldman finally took Archegos on as a client, a relationship which ultimately lasted about as long as the typical relationship following a bachelor or bachelorette final rose ceremony. Anyhow, at this point, and I know this is not going to shock you, 
it's time for our very first dip into the hot tub time machine. But we only need to go back less than a month to the week of March 22nd, when investors finally got to meet Mr. Wang and Arkegos. During that week, the initial tremors were felt when Viacom CBS, taking advantage of its high stock price, in fact, Viacom's stock price had gone up from $12 a share in March of last year, 2020, to nearly $100 a share this year. And they wanted to raise capital to better compete with the likes of Netflix, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, and Hulu. And the company announced a $3 billion offering of stock and convertible debt. Well, for whatever reason, perhaps reflecting this fickle, if not volatile, stock market, Viacom's stock price declined 9% on that day, and another 23% the following day. That was Wednesday, the week of March 22nd. Well, it just so happens that Arkegos, through this total return swaps position I mentioned earlier, had exposure to the equivalent of $10 billion in Viacom tens of millions of company shares, and as I mentioned, supposedly some 30% or more of the entire company. Well, alarm bells began to ring at the investment banks doing business with Arkegos as a result of this sharp price drop, the largest names being companies we recognize, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, and Nomura. Not surprisingly, these banks wanted Arkegos to sell some Viacom shares, take losses, a few lumps, and reduce its exposure to not only Viacom, but to some of the other companies that Mr. Wang owned and that had also seen some price declines that week, namely GSX, Baidu, and Tencent, those Chinese companies I mentioned earlier. My understanding is that Mr. Wang refused, perhaps believing, very mistakenly in hindsight, that the share drops were temporary. Well, on Thursday, March 25th, some or all of these prime brokers, these investment banks, had an emergency powwow, which I can only imagine was a Zoom call from hell, all while Archegos's losses were actually growing with some of the stock prices cratering. I can only wonder if it was on that call or when exactly these individual banks finally realized their collective exposure to the family office, and the handful of companies in which Wang and Arkegos had made such concentrated bets. Well, for those of you who have studied game theory, how should all of these individual banks respond is a classic game of prisoner's dilemma. If they all cooperated and acted in unison, perhaps losses might have been minimized. Viacom's share price might have stabilized, and the banks could liquidate positions or reduce exposures in a coordinated, systematic way. Or one or more of the banks not wanting to put their faith and trust in the others, the other prisoners, would move preemptively and quickly trying to minimize their own losses. The other banks be damned. Think of fire in a crowded theater. If everyone acts calm, cool, and collected, as they say, the maximum number of people would survive. But we all know that doesn't happen. Everyone runs for the exits, panics, chaos ensues, and many more are injured or worse as a result. For whatever reason, when I was thinking about these investment banks all trying to deal with their Archegos exposure, I was sadly reminded of what happened in Cincinnati, Ohio, 
in December 1979 when 11 people were killed at a Who concert, when concert goers at an open seating venue all tried to enter at the same time. Well, Credit Suisse wanted to wait a huge error in hindsight. Morgan Stanley moved preemptively, unloading some $5 billion in Archegos' position at a discount, mainly to a group of hedge funds. Following suit, Goldman did the same thing early Friday morning, the week of March 22nd, selling $10 billion of various shares controlled by Archegos. And then, like a perverse financial game of musical chairs, the music stopped. And when it did so, Goldman, Deutsche Bank, Morgan Stanley, and Wells Fargo had escaped getting out before the Archegos bonfire had spread, taking some losses, but not prohibitively costly ones. Credit Suisse and Omura, they were, for lack of a better term, steamrolled, hurt by their delay and perhaps the misplaced trust they put in their competition. Sometimes there really is no monopoly on, well, stupidity, greed, or failure to remember your game theory. It seems like these two banks forgot the simplest of old adages, he who hesitates loses. Collectively, it appears that these two banks will end up losing more than $10 billion, and Credit Suisse seems now to be almost in crisis mode, having lost on just this one single client the equivalent of more than three entire years of profit. They've cut their dividend, terminated several key personnel, suspended employee bonuses, and rumors are swirling that the company will be shedding business units, including its asset management arm, in response to the debacle and the need for the bank to shore up its balance sheet and raise capital as a result. What's remarkable, and perhaps a testament to the amount of liquidity in the markets, the Archegos blow-up and resulting huge price declines in several of the names which littered its portfolio have not resulted in broader market losses. In the Great Recession, this was not the case. When the subprime mortgage market imploded, it began a cascade of losses and failures from Bear Stearns to AIG to Lehman Brothers. And as banks foreclosed on troubled real estate assets and sold them, losses and foreclosures only increased. Not this time. Market indices reached new all-time highs this past week, and the market mostly looked past this incident. But it does beg the question as to what other risks are lurking behind investment bank, hedge fund, and family office doors. I suppose we will have to wait and see, but failing to pay heed to these warning signs and the bubbles we have discussed in many other episodes, whether it be in cryptocurrency and the recent price rise in Dogecoin or SPACs, we had better have our eyes wide open at this point. Meantime, you are probably also asking the same question that always follows these sorts of events. Where are the regulators, our financial watchdogs, who ought to be looking out for these sort of things? You may recall that I tackled this issue in my F is for Fraud episode. To this point, regulators have taken the position that investors need not disclose positions in equity derivatives unless they control voting rights. As a result, even though Wang and Archegos had de facto control of more than 10% in several companies through those total return swap derivatives, because none of his positions provided him with the ability to vote those shares, the kind of things that are typically associated with stock ownership, he could keep hush-hush about his positions, and even individual banks might not have known what other banks 
might have been doing vis-a-vis Mr. Wang and the collective risks that were involved. Now, did Mr. Wang commit fraud or wrongdoing because he failed to disclose the totality of his positions to individual banks that may have asked? That remains to be seen and is one of the questions that I would like to know the answer to. Typically, when Clear Capital, my real estate investment company, borrows money to acquire a real estate asset, the banks ask us about all of our outstanding liabilities and exposure, including contingent debts. Maybe these sophisticated investment banks did not ask Mr. Huang or Arkegos for such information, or they asked for the information in the wrong way. Maybe Mr. Wang neglected to disclose certain information that was asked and which may have informed banks as to the risks that were involved. But then again, if banks are relying entirely on self-reporting on these sorts of exposures, it might be like asking the fox to guard its own hen house. At this point, there's nothing to indicate that Archegos or Wayne did anything illegal or improper. Amazingly risky, myopic, perhaps stunningly dumb, but assuming excessive risk is not a crime. If it were, Lord knows how many traders, fund managers, and Robin Hood investors would be donning orange jumpsuits at this point. Again, we shall see, so let's all stay tuned. So what are the principal takeaways from this episode of Focus on Facts? One, we need better and more consistent regulations in our financial markets. As I have said over and over again, I know that this concept is anathema to so many of you who believe in free, if not completely unfettered markets. But if you leave markets and investors and banks to their own devices, we will inevitably have real systemic risk and the potential for widespread economic and financial devastation. History makes this patently clear. Significant positions in total return swaps, whether held by individuals, hedge funds, or family offices, should be subject to the same disclosure rules as positions in individual stocks themselves. That will allow both regulators and individual banks to better monitor and assess the risks they might have to particular clients, companies, or investments. Look, after the Enron and MCI WorldCom accounting frauds, we got Sarbanes-Oxley extensive legislation. And since then, we haven't witnessed another accounting fraud of that size here in the United States. After the Great Recession and financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, we got the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act quite a mouthful, legislation which made substantial changes to all federal regulatory agencies and almost every part of our country's financial services industry. We haven't had any significant or systemic bank failures since then. The Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 followed the 1927 stock market crash. Unfortunately, regulators tend to be reactive and not proactive, but the time has come for expanding the disclosure requirements surrounding derivative instruments, including total return swaps. Two, while leverage is a wonderful thing and in the right doses can really expand investment returns, there should be stricter limits on how much leverage any investor can assume, including hedge funds and family offices. Frankly, it's still unclear just how leverage Archegos was, and I assume forensic analysis will be forthcoming and reveal how levered they were, but 
color me not surprised or shocked when it is disclosed in the next year or whenever that Archegos was even more highly levered than we previously were led to believe. Three, investment in commercial banks, asset managers, and other financial institutions really need to more closely monitor and manage risk exposures. I guarantee that the Archegos debacle has every bank closely scrutinizing their clients and re-examining the risks they face. They may even be collaborating at this point to better understand and identify how much collective risk they may face. Four, remember your history, as I have said time and time again. History is simply different people doing the same things over and over again. Did we not learn anything from what Robert Citron did to Orange County because of his passion for leveraged interest rate swaps? From what Nick Leeson did to Barings Bank, driving the oldest Irish bank into insolvency by making fraudulent, unauthorized, and speculative trades in derivatives on the Japanese market. Why do humans seem so intent on forgetting the unambiguous lessons of history? They say that insanity is repeating the same mistakes over again and somehow expecting a different outcome. By that measure, investors, investment banks, fund managers, and even family office must be absolutely insane at least some of the time. The good thing is that as a business school faculty member, I can try to remind audiences of these important lessons that history provides even though they must think I sound like a good old soapbox preacher now and again. But I really believe there is some important gospel we should all remember. And with that, I would like to wish each and every one of you a good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are listening in to this episode of Focus on Facts. Thank you once again for your support, and we will chat again soon, I am sure. The market's the economy and investors somehow provide. Take care and we'll be in touch soon. 